One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is going to catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I want to know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. On today's episode of Never Stand Still, I'm joined by Fareed Zakaria. Fareed is a CNN host, Washington Post columnist, contributing editor at The Atlantic, and best-selling author of three books, just to name a few of his accomplishments. He's been named a top 100 global thinker by Foreign Policy Magazine, and Esquire once called him the most influential foreign policy advisor of our generation. Fareed, it's an honor to have you here today, and welcome to Never Stand Still. Thank you so much, Dan. So, Fareed, I know this is strange for you because typically you'd be interviewing me or any one of a number of uh, interesting people, but today uh, I have the microphone. So I thought I'd start off with just the first question, um, which is how did you get into journalism? I know you had a liberal arts background. How did you move into journalism? What was the thinking there? Sure. Well, I grew up in India. So like any kid in India who did well on tests, I streamed into science. Right. Uh, there's a point in 10th grade where you stream and you choose science, social science, uh, or the humanities. And at my school, like in most good schools in India, I hate to put it this way, but the smart kids would do science. The right. rich kids would do social science because that was economics. They could take over their dad's business. <laughs> right. uh, and the girls would do humanities. And so I did science. Um, I, went, I got a scholarship to Yale. Started out doing science. Did a lot of math, computer science, physics. And took one class in international relations. And I realized, you know what? This is what I really love. And I switched course. Um, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And... By the time I get to the end of undergrad, I'm trying to think this through. What I do know is I love America and I love the opportunities here. Yeah. So I thought to myself, what is the way I can stay in the United States for the longest time uh, on a student visa? And that would be getting a PhD. So I got a PhD <laughs> in international <laughs> relations at Harvard. Um, and then was just looking around. I didn't, I sort of thought maybe I'd be an academic. I did it in a sense for a, for a while. I taught courses at Harvard. Um, and then I got an offer to do journalism, and I realized that this was sort of what I had always wanted to do. I'd, I'd done a lot of summer jobs in journalism. Economists have a great term called revealed preferences. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't, don't watch what you say, watch what you do. And Absolutely. I noticed that in the doing, in the living of my life, I had done a lot of journalism. And so I took the plunge, and you know, 30 years later, I'm still going strong. 30 years, that's amazing. I bet you can't believe it when you look oh, back. Man. Well, but the best thing about it is, um, you know, I made, made a lot of mistakes in my life. Um, the best thing about it is that I chose something that, honestly, I would do even if they didn't pay me. Now, I never tell that to my employers during con right. contract they're negotiations. They're not listening to this yeah. anyway. Yeah. But that's the real, you know, th that's when you hit the jackpot. When you, yeah. when, you, when you think to yourself, the stuff you do for work is so energizing that you kind of do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been doing this now, as you said, for several decades, which is incredible. You've interviewed world leaders. You've interviewed corporate 
uh, CEOs, uh, public figures around the globe. Are there a couple of those interviews that, as you look back, that you think were either defining or made a difference in some way? How, how do you think about, um, as you look back at that whole series of work that you've done? Sure. You know, I, I try to think about the work I've done in terms of spreading ideas, because I'm, un, I'm yeah. a little unusual even on CNN in that I'm allowed to have a point of view. The show opens with a commentary. Right. So I, my principal goal is to get Americans to understand the world better and to understand that America prospers and thrives by being deeply engaged in the world. And so I sort of view that as the question, you know, the, the challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, right now we're going through some tough times with regard to that. But I also think that the truth is we've had a lot of engagement in globalization. And naturally, there's, a, some, ba- there's some backlash. Yeah. And, you know, the forces of progress and, if you will, have to keep pushing forward. But in terms of the interviews themselves, I'd say, uh, you know, a few stand out. The, probably the, the most, the smartest guy I ever interviewed at some deep level was Lee Kuan Yew, the founder of Singapore. Sure. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because you find a lot of politicians who are great politicians, kind of good doers, and then you find a lot of intellectuals who are great thinkers. Lee Kuan Yew combined the two. Yeah. Here's a guy who took over a sandbar in the middle of yeah, Southeast exactly, Asia, an island. one of the poorest countries in the world. And he took it in one generation from poverty to prosperity. But Singapore is now richer per capita than the United States or Britain. Um, And how he did that uh, was the most... Because he had a strategic view about it. Some people luck into it. Some people operate by instinct. No, he had a planned, thought-through strategy. He could articulate it to you. He could tell you how he managed the geopolitical balance of being in Asia, close to China... Uh, at the same time protected by the United States. He could talk about economic policy. He could talk about his racial policy. You know, that level of um, thoughtfulness and introspection is rare. Um, In terms of the, you know, important interviews, each one in some way, you know, the bigger ones have made some impact. Uh, I interviewed Putin a couple of years ago and was the first person who asked him, you know, why do you like Donald Trump so much? Right, And right. he bristled at it. In fact, he gave this long, you know, he, so interesting. he began by saying, Mr. Zakaria, you're a world-famous intellectual. Why are you asking me these trivial questions? And he backed away at the time because, remember, at that moment, Hillary seemed like she was going to yeah. win. This is the middle yep. of the campaign. Yep. And he says, I never said that I thought he was, uh, he was impressive. I just said that he was fascinating. You, yeah. you have your translation wrong, which I had not. I had obviously done my homework. Um, I was using the, the Russian government translation. But um, what I'm struck by with, with most um, politicians is that they really stick to their, their talking points yeah. in a way that makes them programmed and formulated. And so one of the things that I think we're seeing with Trump, and in this sense, he is a harbinger of the future, is people want to know who you are, really. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's because that's really maybe going to be the new form of politics, where people are going to be a little bit more unscripted and unguarded. Because what Trump has proved is people will forgive a lot of so-called mistakes yeah. if they feel as though it's just coming from you authentically. Yeah. So it's interesting. I've spoken to a lot of people about what we're seeing uh, in today's political uh, environment. And obviously, we're seeing much more unscripted uh, versions of, of narratives that, that are coming out. Um, there is a ton, though, of uh, thought around this idea of fake news, um, that even though it may be unscripted, 
it still is a narrative that's trying to be um, propagated, you know, and even if it may uh, not have its full roots in veracity, it's still, if it's said enough, and if other things are sort of demeaned as fake news, then, you know, something becomes the truth out there, which is an interesting new concept, maybe not so new, actually. But I'm curious how you see this whole idea of fake news. Is it, is it really a thing that's just happened or has it just been given that label? Um, and you're right at the forefront of that. CNN is in the you know, crosshairs often of, uh, of that. H- how do you think about all that? I'm fascinated by, um, by the idea of journalism um, and democracy in, in an era of, you know, of unscripted and uh, possibly, you know, um, um, ideas that may not be rooted in truths. So I think it's a very big and important question. Yeah. Um, I think that there's no question that fake news is not a new thing. Yeah. In fact, it's a very old thing. They, if you think about human history, most of hum- humanity, most of our rec- recorded history, um, you, f- you first of all had only an oral tradition, right. really, until you right. get to Gutenberg and the, and, the, and the printing press. And there were always, in that sense, competing narratives, people telling their version of the truth, right. gossip masquerading as, as fact. So we've, we've had, we have a very long tradition of this idea of competing narratives. If you think about the, the great Japanese movie Rashomon, where one event happens, a, a rape, and the movie tells that story through four Different points onlookers' of points yeah. of view. And what you realize in that in the, the movie is trying to convey to you is there is no objective reality. Yeah. There are yeah. just these yeah. four points of view. In a sense, quantum physics is really telling you that, that there is no objective. Even, even yeah. time is not actually, or, or space are not distinct objective phenomena, but they are interrelated. So in that sense, what I mean is that's why it's so easy to do, because that deep in the human psyche, we have this idea that, that, thing, that everything is relative. So I don't think it's new. What happened in the 20th century was uh, we got to something called fact and objective news uh, as a product of I think, two things that happened. One was science. Mm-hmm. Uh, science began to create the sense that, you know what, there may be at the quantum level, things may be, in, uh, may be relative, but when you turn on a light, a light uh, you know, switch, you know the light, the light bulb is going to go on yeah. and you know it because there has been multiple independently verifiable scientific processes that take you there. And that whole idea that there is verifiable objective truth uh, became much more solidified and kind of privileged and empowered. And the second was that the United States came together uh, toward a single narrative. And that was really the process of fighting the Great Depression World War II, the Cold War. Um, if you look at the great centralizing force that that had, it created a national middle class, it created a national media for the first time, yeah. and that national media was dominated and cartelized. There were three networks, there were two great news magazines, yeah. there were probably three or four great newspapers, and they all hewed to a kind of center, objective reality version of truth. We're now back to, in a sense, an older version of the pamphleteers of the 18th century. Everyone has a voice. Everyone has a voice. Everyone has a view. At some level, I don't mind it in that it's the chaos and messiness of democracy. It's the chaos and messiness of human life. What I do worry about is it is also, however, a rejection of science 
of, of the idea of progress, of the idea of objective reality. And that's very discouraging. That's w very worrying. I mean, I don't mind that people, in a sense, when, when somebody like Trump says, look, this is fake news. And what he's trying to say is, this is their left-wing anti-Trump spin on things. That's right, fine. Of course. But when you say two plus two is equal to six, yeah. that's, th that's when you start to get at, you know, uh, you're assaulting a very important foundation of modern life. At the end of the day, to my mind, one of the main reasons human life has gotten better, uh, human beings have gotten better, is because of the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, yeah. the biochemical, you know, and all those things are based on fact and science. Yeah. And so you start saying, you know, global warming isn't happening or whatever it is, you know, that these, we're not going to study the effects, we're not going to even, you know, commission studies on, on the effects of having these many guns in the country because, right. you know, any kind of scientific findings are nonsense because science is not. That's the part where I really worry. And I think we're going down a dangerous path and no other Western country, by and large, is going down that path. Yeah. Do you think um, clearly in this day and age, and I've spoken to Don Graham you know, at the Washington Post and a number of others, that the role of journalism is shifting, in some cases being more and more important than ever. Social media now, you know, has given a lot of fragmentation. Curation is important because people are trying to figure out with all of the bombarding signals that we get, like which are the ones that we filter out and which are the ones that we filter in. How has your role changed? How has the role of journalism changed? And, um, and how do we make sense, sense of that? Yeah, again, a big question, and yeah. I think it's very, it's, it's complicated. At one level, I think the thing I notice is the fragmentation, as you say, more than anything yeah. else. So when I was ma made a columnist at the Washington Post, the Washington Post ran maybe four to five columns a day. Um, there were maybe 12 to 15 columnists. It was sort of like being a, having been appointed to, you know, the Supreme Court or <laughs> right. at least a federal court of appeals. Yeah. You felt like yeah. there was this gilded club you had access to this very important page, the New York Times and the Washington Post op-ed pages were yeah. the two great uh, forums. Today, I think the Washington Post op-ed op section publishes not the 30 to 40 columns I described, but something on the range of 400 pieces. Wow. Some of them are 200-word blog yeah. posts. Some of them are 400-word. Everybody's riffing. Um, a new post goes up probably every hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, you know, and that's just the one Washington Post, right? The, 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 this is what's happened. So you went from a cartelized system where there yep. were few channels and platforms to a free-for-all. And that has diluted, in a sense, any one person's importance. I, I think that one of the things I wonder about is the way I got to become more prominent as a journalist was I probably, in the 10 years I worked at Newsweek, um, I wrote maybe 50 cover stories for a, news, for a magazine that had something on the range of 15 million regular yep. readers yep. worldwide with 85% renewal rates. I, I remember that's getting not that gonna, in the mail. Yeah, that's not going to, I mean, that, that, the way Tom Friedman became famous was he was the principal foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times, which was the, you know, then there were only two or three places you look for that kind of thing. Yeah. That world has gone. And I don't know how somebody comes, you know, there will be some different path, but it will be fragmented. You will have a niche. You will not have, you know, this kind of uh, larger impact. But 
you have many more voices, greater intensity and, yeah. and fervor around them. So that piece of it has clearly changed and, and you know, it's changed forever. The second piece, I think, which is a more current political issue is I think what we are seeing in the chaos and, and backlash against globalization, against immigration, against trade, yeah. is a sort of sense of, I, we want to change the whole system. Uh, and in some ways that there, there is a danger to democracy in that. Uh, and the press has to play its part in maintaining the American democratic system. And I don't mean just against Donald Trump. I think that there are these illiberal forces First of all, everywhere in the world, you see yeah. them from Russia Absolutely. to Turkey sure. to India to Europe. Um, and I look at these places and what I notice is the places that descend and really go down a path of no return like Russia or Turkey, um, the press and the courts didn't fight back hard enough. Mm -hmm. um, that You know, you, you, you can have all the best laws in the yeah. world, but you have to have actual engagement and, and pushback. Um, that, you know, you can have the most beautifully written constitution in the world, if the, but if the moving parts don't play their role and those are human beings there, it's not going to happen. And one thing that gives me some optimism about America is you look at the courts, you look at the independent agencies yeah. like the FBI, you look at the press. It is trying to maintain, they are trying to maintain their independence. And they are, I don't know that they can do it forever, but I think it's very important that they try to do it forever. Yeah. Well, I think... Um the courage necessary to do that um, is increased now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think before it was just sort of part and parcel the way that you were always going to have these institutions, they were always going to be revered. I think as you've had more fragmentation, they've been under attack a lot more. Yeah. And therefore, I think individuals, actually, the leaders of those, the people in the public face, there's a lot more courage necessary, I think. There's a lot more. I have a ton more respect for those who do what I think are, are very straightforward, fact-based journalism in an era where you do have a lot of fragmentation happening right now. And I worry that that fragmentation can lead to um, people becoming more polarized yep. because they, they listen to a particular channel of information that comes in, not a TV channel, but just a particular channel of information and really trying to understand, I think it's so important in our democracy that we have, you know, statesmen that, that look above their own common good and listen to both points of view and try to rationalize that. And I, I just think it's, we're in a little bit of a different world right now and yeah. I admire what you and others are doing. I think it takes a ton of courage. I think even us as CEOs need to step up, have a voice, talk about values, and, and really start to advocate for civil liberties because I think that's just so important. You know, I think it's such an important point. Um, part of what's happened is the press has, in the best cases, the press has discovered the importance of its role. I think a lot of journalists were just doing yeah. a job, and then when you, when you start to see this stuff, the attack, and the, the way in which it can, go, it can spiral downward, I think people realize, you know what, we're not just here with doing a job. We, we, we have a role, a civic role in society. And I agree with you, Dan. I think it's very important that CEOs do that as well. Of course, yeah. they have uh, shareholders to worry about. Yeah. Of course, they have a business. But they also, have, they also play a role within society. I mean, business is today as important as the... I don't know, the church was in the Middle Ages, right? It's the dominant central institution. Most people 
derive their sense of satisfaction and their livelihood from a private yeah. sector organization. So those private sector organizations have to ask themselves, well, you know, how do we maintain this system? It's not a natural, freely occurring system. It exists because we live in a framework of laws and, and so culture. Really, yep. And how do we, you know, make sure that that, those, that system doesn't get uh, totally screwed up? Yeah. That piece, I think, is very important. The other thing you raised, which I just want to touch on, the incentives right now in the media are to go to polarize. Yes. You get much more attention and money if you, if you go hard left or hard right. Yeah. The, the tragedy is that most of the country is in the middle. Uh, not most of the activists, not most of the primary voters, but the average person in America is in, the, is in the center. And one of the problems of this technology is that the technology has empowered this polarization because you can select, uh, but it doesn't actually serve the majority because, yeah. because it tends to serve the most intense and aggressive minorities. How to solve that problem, you know, which which is being exacerbated but not caused by technology, is one of the great challenges I think we face. Because otherwise, we end up not with majority rule in America, but with minority rule—the yeah. rule of the most intense minorities. I think it's a great point. One of my favorite poems. We'll talk about liberal education in a second. Is Yeats the Falconer, where it yeah. says, "The worst of us are filled with a passionate intensity." And I think the best lack all conviction exactly. and the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Exactly. exactly. So I think now you have a, these um, platforms that enable those minorities to have very loud voices, whereas before we, we right. may not have had right. that. And I, I just think it's a part of the world we need to, yeah. we need to think about uh, here. I think um, you've just written a book in defense of a liberal education. Um, which I think is a fascinating topic because as things become more complex right now in our, in our worlds, and um, you know, most of my guests actually grew up in uh, liberal arts uh, educations. Why is it that you felt the need to, to write this book now? And um, what reaction have you gotten to it? It's interesting. I, I find that we're living in a time when technology is so dominant that we are, we, and we're worried we're falling ab uh, behind, that everybody has become obsessed with the idea of STEM as, yeah. as, as you know, science, te technology, engineering, math. And I come out of that background in a sense. I started out in that field and I have huge respect for it. And I think it's incredibly important. But I think that people sometimes misunderstand that life is, you know, is much larger and more complex and that a STEM has to be one foundation yeah. of it. But you also have to understand human beings. You have to understand human society. You have to understand, you know, the wants, needs, uh, pleasures, pains of human beings. And in order to understand that completely, you need to, you know, to have the, a marriage between the liberal arts, uh, humanities, social sciences, and these more hardcore science disciplines. Yeah. I mean, and the great technologists all understood that. Um, Steve Jobs always talked about how Apple was a marriage. In fact, he used these precise uh, words, a marriage between liberal arts and technology. Yeah. He always said the most important course he ever took in college was a calligraphy course because it taught him about design. And yeah. if you think yeah. about Apple, what Apple's really revolutionary element was he, he found a way to make people look at computers not as back office machines, but as something to fall in love with, something to make part of your personal life. And, yeah. you know, and that, that connection is frankly what allows Apple to charge the premiums it does, right? And so it's the core of the business yeah. model. Zuckerberg uh, told me that 
the most important courses he took at, uh, at Harvard was psychology courses. Well, he was thinking of becoming a psychology major. Of course, he was you know, obsessed with computers and yeah. always was yeah. getting... But the reason was, he said, he was always interested in what human beings need and want, and that Facebook is founded, he said, on technology and psychology. And the psychology being understanding, and you remember from the days of MySpace yeah. and, and, and Twitter, yeah. that people didn't want to be anonymous or pseudonymous. They yeah. didn't want these handles. They wanted a place where they could be themselves, where their friends could know who they were, and that that's why the identity in Facebook is very, you know, it started with college. Uh, so you, 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 could, you could be sure that somebody was who they said they yeah. were. And that psychological insight that you wanted to be known to your friends is at the heart of what is now one of the you know, five biggest companies in the world. Yeah. And on and on you can go. You know, the, the point being really at some fundamental level, you can understand technology, but if you don't understand how human beings use the technology, you're not going to make money. Yeah. And you know this better than anyone because you're in a business that is very much a combination of technology and human interaction yeah. with it. I'd also say that the best companies in the world are the best companies in the world because they have the best employees. And the only way you attract the best employees, at least in my opinion, is that you paint a incredibly compelling vision and mission for the company and values that support it. And those missions and that vision and those values uh, have to be firmly rooted in, you know, what are the pain points that customers are going through and how can we make a real difference right. in the world? And how do our values support that? People flock to companies where they can make a difference. You said it yourself, like you want to go, you, you would do the Absolutely. same thing that you're doing today, you know, for nothing. And, you know, and I don't know if everyone feels that way, but I feel like myself, I love my job as well because I feel like we can make a real difference. And I think if I just came out at it from a technology perspective or maybe just a, a, only a liberal arts perspective, I think that marriage of those two is crucial to being a great company. You know what I found is that you asked about the reaction to the book. Yeah. Um, when I've talked to CEOs, both for uh, doing research on the book, but also afterwards talking at corporate events or just meeting them socially, they all get it. Um, and many of them are actually yeah. themselves. You know, as you say, they have a liberal arts background. Uh, Jeff Bukas, the CEO of Time Warner, was a philosophy major. Yeah. Um, you know, David they, Solomon. Exactly, David yeah. Solomon. I mean, yeah. and on and on. You know, one would be surprised at how many hedge fund managers were English yeah. majors and yeah. things like yeah. that. <laughs> but uh, when you talk to the head of HR, that's where you get into the problem because they're nervous. They're, lot, they're not as confident as the CEO. So the CEO says, yeah, I just want smart people who are interesting, determined, yeah. driven, want to learn, yeah. want to adapt. And they get that, you know, whether you did English or math or whatever it is, you could be great or you could not be great. The guy at HR is a little more cautious, a little more risk averse. And he thinks, if I get this guy who's done you know, finance and they're, they're, they're looking for some predictable path. Yeah. And so... Part of the trick is, I think, to, for people who are in liberal arts to understand that and to understand, look, you need to show uh, somebody who might be risk averse that you can do this job, you can, you know, you're interested and eager. Yeah. So there's a little bit more of an onus. But I think the benefit is once you get a little bit further up from entry level jobs, the breadth of your perspective Absolutely. begins to help enormously. Yeah. I think that's a, a especially a great in a point. world where yeah. the computers are going to do more of the routine analytic tasks 
that the entry-level worker used to do. Yep, yep, all great points. So um, let me go um, to the last question. And people obviously um, know you as a uh, public figure. Um, you know, many, if not all, look up to what, what you've done in your life and, and hold you up as uh, an example of tremendous success. Um, but the whole idea of this show is that there's, um, you know, a saying in martial arts that you should never stand still because when you do, you get hit and, uh, and, uh, and that's painful and you have to get back up. Um, and I know because all of us go through life and life is, you know, never straighten up to the right, um, that you also have had your challenges. Um, could you maybe talk to the audience about some of the challenges you've had, some of the lessons you've learned, and how you've just kept, um, kept going in spite of all of that? Oh, sure. Look, I mean, I have, I've had lots of challenges. Um, you know, to start with, I, I was, at the end of my getting my PhD, I'm realizing I trained to be an academic, but I don't want to be an academic and I have to find a new profession. And, you know, that itself <laughs> was its own easy. very difficult yep. process. Yep. I remember when I first got the first job, I, uh, uh, not even a job, but the job prospect, um, I thought to myself, how am I going to convince this editor-in-chief to hire a guy who has no, you know, I don't have one working day in journalism other than as an intern. Um, and that proved to be challenging. Then I go into print journalism and I begin to realize, and I have to be honest, I think it was more intuitive than any kind of great analysis that the whole industry was collapsing around me. And so I start finding ways to do more television. And, yep. and, uh, and, you know, if I look at that world of print journalism that I went into, which was massively profitable when I got into it, um, it just collapsed around me. Um, I then, you know, I faced personal challenges, you know, my, in my marriage. I, I faced challenges of people accusing me of uh, things like plagiarism, and you know, and then you and you would, it produces this incredible sense yeah. of, you know, honestly doubt because you start to look at yourself and say, I think we all at the, I, I'm going to make this statement. I think it's true for most particularly successful people. There is some part of you that thinks, you know, this is all bullshit. You, this yeah. is fake. This is yeah. I, I, I don't deserve this, and you start, you know, and so then you ask yourself. Maybe this is all true. Maybe I'm, and then you go back down and ask yourself, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What can I learn from it? Um, but I think the most important thing that's kept me going is this feeling that I want to do, I want to make a difference. I found some areas where I'm pretty good at it. And, you know, I'm just going to keep working at it. And I'm going to keep trying to make sure it's like baseball. Yeah. I just want to get the batting average up. Right. I, I, I know- We're that, gonna strike you know, out a lot. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna strike out a lot. And, and I sometimes think there was a great New Yorker writer who said, he said, I don't think I'm the world's greatest writer, but I write faster than people who write better and I write better than people who write faster. Right. In other words, I can do this pretty well, pretty fast, yeah. and that, that, there's a market for that. I, I, you know, you, you have to at some level uh, balance, I think, that that ability to look inward and look at your mistakes and learn from them um, and not get paralyzed and debilitated by them because everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. Everybody. And so, you know, if you give in to, and particularly now that I've pre I'm pretty public, you know, I, get, I can't tell you the amount of support I get and, and encouragement, 
but I get a fair degree of nastiness, a lot of it racial and religiously mm -hmm. oriented. So it's a lot yeah. of it is pure bigotry. And you can sometimes get startled by it. Some, some people sometimes ask me, well, it's like, what's the most important quality to being able to do what you do? And I, I don't know that I would say it's the most important quality, but having a thick skin is important. Yeah. You know, you got to keep moving. And if you stop moving, uh, as you say, you know, you're going you're, you're gonna to die. And if you're, you can stop moving because you get debilitated by doubt and paralysis. And the, the way to think about it, I think, is not that you should therefore just kind of have bravado and move forward. No, you have to turn back. You have to look inside. You have to ask yourself where you made mistakes. But that shouldn't stop you from moving forward. Well, yeah. that, that, those mistakes are opportunities to learn and move forward. Yeah. And so that's what I try to do. And my, my advice to people would be really, uh, more than anything else, just don't give up. You know, life is long, life is rich, life is complicated. Yeah. But if, if, if you give up on yourself, why is somebody yeah. else going to take a bet, make, a, make a bet on yeah. you? I think it's a, I mean, I think those are so many great points. I also think, you know, there are very few people in the world you know, Bill Clinton famously said, you know, the moment I was born, I knew I wanted to be president. But pretty much nobody else <laughs> <laughs> even knows what they're going to be doing three, five, ten years from now. And I find that putting so much pressure on yourself, like you think you're moving towards this and then something happens and you're on a di different path. So be it. Right. Learn from exactly. that. Exactly. And then move forward on exactly. whatever that path may be. Exactly. And so... Listen, Farid, I, I just want to thank you. Um, it was a great conversation. Um, I learned a ton. I hope that uh, people watching um, also feel that same sense of uh, uh, so many lessons and, and so many insights that you have. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, I, love, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank uh, you. Me too. Thanks.